I'll be reading from Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, the arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Thank you, Brian. You may be seated. Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Ben Morrow. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer. I'm pinch hitting for Pastor Jamie this morning. Um, we'll be getting back to our study in the book of Exodus next week, but this morning we're going to have a look at Psalm 77, which I have brilliantly titled a Psalm of Lament because I'm really good at naming things. Before we begin, um, I should tell you that I'm not unaware of the events that have gone on this last week. I have not been living in a cave. I know where we live and what we've been dealing with. I, I assure you that this song and this sermon this morning is not just a reaction to the events that have happened. In fact, I tell you that I, we had this picked out and this particular sermon picked out prior to Christmas, before the bombing in Nashville even happened. So we've had a lot of things going on. And... This idea of lament, this biblical concept of lament, something I believe we could use this morning. So while these different things that I mentioned and so many more things that are happening are worthy of our lament, I, I want you to know that I'm not, I don't want us just to look at any one individual issue, but understand that where these things do apply, they apply. And let the Lord speak to us individually, wherever we may be and whatever we're dealing with, because I believe it's worthy of, of looking at. But even though, even so, here we are, Psalm 77. My question is, how does a Christian deal with life at its hardest? And don't hear what I'm not asking. I'm not asking, how does some super Christian, who doesn't exist, by the way, how is some super-Christian able to leap tall buildings in a single bound? I'm asking, how do we, as followers of Christ, 
continue to follow Christ in real faith when life is at its worst and we are at our worst? How do we do that? Psalm 77. Let's talk about lament for a second. In case you may be a bit fuzzy on what the word lament means, we're talking about an expression, not just a feeling, but an expression of mourning or of grief that's usually expressed publicly. It was a biblical expression, especially here in the Old Testament. The congregation of Israel often sang songs together, and some of the songs they sang were songs of lament. We have a whole section of the book of Psalms that are given to this idea of lament. So we have here Asaph was the songwriter. We have Asaph writing from the heart where he found himself, where he was pouring out his heart to the Lord, but he wrote it down. He didn't just write it for himself. He wrote it for the congregation. And think about this, as hard as those, some of those words were that Bryant just read to us, he had the congregation come together and sing them together and lament together and mourn together. So it was part of their worship. So Asaph, just to understand the context here, he's a songwriter writing from a place of grief. Life has really hit him hard. And he's writing something that not only gets kept for his generation, but has been passed down through the wisdom of God, has been kept and preserved throughout every generation of the followers of Yahweh. We get to read this and understand what a biblical lament looks like. Lament is not a super happy topic. It's not maybe something we come to church ready to hear about. I want to talk about lament today. This sounds fun. But it is real. I do wonder if sometimes maybe we train ourselves to think that there's not an appropriate place for a person of faith to express real grief and real sorrow and call it what it is. I think if we're not careful, we may fall into this trap of, okay, I feel what I feel, but that's personal and I don't let anyone see that. What we project in public and what we say to the world, to be a good Christian means that I've got to put my best foot forward and I have to have it all together, at least on the surface. Asaph wasn't interested in that. He wasn't interested specifically in some sort of false optimism or some sort of faux happiness. Now, I'm not, I don't want you to get the feeling that I'm proposing that Christians are just supposed to be negative people all the time. I'm not. There, is, there are very right and good places for you, to, for you and I to be encouraged in our hope, in our faith, in our joy, in looking to Christ and not dwelling on our circumstances. Those things, we, we need to encourage each other in those things. But there is a time for mourning. Ecclesiastes tells us this. There's a time to mourn. What does that mourning look like biblically? So I want to make sure that before we get into the text, before we look at lament, before we see what Asaph is going through here, I want to make sure we understand the difference between maybe um, a bad attitude and lament or perhaps despair and lament. 
We're not called to a bad attitude. There is a difference between when life kind of hits you in the back of the head and when life runs you over with a dump truck. There are times when you have to just stop and call it what it is and say, this is where I am and I don't see any way out. Help me, Lord. The Puritans called despair turning your back on God. That's how they defined it. To despair is to turn your back on God. Lament is not in the same place as despair, but I would say it's within the same zip code. It's within shouting distance. You're, you're not despairing, but you're pretty low. We're not turning our back on God. We may not be where Job's wife was, where she said to him, why don't you just curse God, let him have it, tell him everything you feel, get it off your chest, and just die. Real encouraging woman, wasn't she? We, we're not there but perhaps we are where Job was when he came before the Lord and said, I don't know what I have done. I don't know if you have changed your demeanor toward me. I don't understand what's happening. Will you please give me an answer? It's interesting, at the end of the story of Job, God commends Job for his attitude. Even though Job had some Things to say, some questionable things to say in the way he addressed God. God didn't judge him for that. So we're dealing with lament, this idea of expressing our, our agony, our mourning, when we find ourselves in a real place that's worthy of mourning. So I ask the question again, what do we do when life is at its worst and we are at our worst? So Psalm 77, Asaph finds himself in a place here that he just couldn't contrive optimism. He couldn't just put up a good front. He was in grief. He was grieving and he was calling the congregation to grief. There was a time when they came together. It was an appropriate time for them to come together and grieve together, to mourn, to ask God tough questions, and to work through this lament together. So as we look at the psalm, I hope we can feel the pathos of this ancient Jewish song. Remember, this is a song. So when we approach the psalms, it's easy just to start reading. We get the meat of the text. We get the data, but we don't. it's easy to not necessarily completely feel what was being felt and get the whole picture together. Have you ever heard an old, mournful Jewish melody Maybe in a movie, maybe you've heard it in a concert, maybe you've um, heard it somewhere. Maybe you watched a movie where in the background you hear this old sad violin playing. It sets the mood for you, right? If you were to go home and throw on a song that's, that's the blues or an old mournful country song, when you start hearing that song being played, even before you hear the words of the song, your mind, your soul is already starting to understand the mood of that song, right? We don't, it's hard for us to get that when we just jump into the psalm, but understand that Asaph, that understand that when the congregation came together, they felt the whole thing. They were mourning and they were, they were singing a song together of mourning. So we're going to get to a good place here in this psalm, but we've got to work our way through it. And I don't want to miss the power and the pathos here. So beginning of verse one, let's, let's look at our first point when I don't get an answer. This is verses one through three in Psalm 77. Asaph says, I cry aloud to God. 
aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord and in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. He just said, I'm, I'm calling out to you by day. I'm calling out to you by night. I am not putting my hand down. I'm continuing to stretch toward the heavens. Asaph is saying, I need an answer and I can't quit here. I can't just pretend this is something I could just move past. I need an answer. It's not just a man sitting around depressed. He's taking his angst to the Lord. He says, in the day of the trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. And then he says, verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Asaph writing from his heart, the congregation singing together from their heart. Now, I don't know, when I read this psalm, I can't tell, I can't tell where the blue notes are, where the sharps and the flats and the lack of resolution in this movement. I can't tell which words here were whispered and which were moaned and which were screamed at the sky. I don't know how the congregation handled this, but I know it was emotive. I know it was soulful. And I know in verse 3, Asaph is saying, I remember God and my spirit just wants to sink because as he's going to say, I remember the good times. and This ain't it. But I remember what it was like to walk with God in optimism and in youthfulness, in blessing and in happiness. And I don't find myself there. My soul hurts. I want us to keep faith in mind here and what faith in lament can look like. I believe genuine faith. I believe God is glorified with our faith when we, in those moments where we don't feel like reaching out to him, we continue to reach. This is where faith has nothing to do with my feelings. It's I feel down. I'm almost done. And in that moment, I still gaze upward. I believe God is glorified even in that moment because we don't just throw in the towel. It's when we continue to take it to him. So this this says Selah after verse 3. This, this means it's the end of the first section, the, the first movement of the psalm. Remember, this is a congregational song. The group is being asked now to stop and focus on the pain of what it feels like to be alone, to cry out to God and to feel unheard. They're stopping. I'm, I'm almost positive we're dealing with a with a tune where the, the resolution hasn't been made complete yet, and we just have to stop. Can you imagine if we came to church on a Sunday morning and Dan led us in a, in, in a section of songs, and our first song was just simply, God, you don't hear me. God, I feel awful, and that's it, and that's the song? It'd be kind of depressing, wouldn't it? It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel right. We're supposed to have the yeah, but to jump right in and, and, and rescue us right then. Asaph lets it linger. Half of this psalm, he lets it linger. This first movement, the congregation stops and thinks about what they're feeling and lets the weight of it hit them. They don't treat this dishonestly, but they honestly say before the Lord, God, I feel wretched and I feel like you don't hear me. 
I continue to stretch out toward you. And all I can think of is the time when I used to enjoy your presence. So let's stop and think about that. That's, that's the first selah, the first movement. Let's keep going. Let's look at the second movement or the second section of verses here in Psalm 77. So if the first point is when I don't get an answer, the second point is when I've lost my joy. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. Hear that, that raw honesty still. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. That's pitiful. That's, that hurts. Asaph is saying, Lord, will you please give me just an ounce of the joy I once experienced? I'm in a pit here, and I can barely remember what it was like to know that joy and confidence and to walk in your presence, to know that, just to know that when I called your name, I knew you were there, and I experienced your sweetness, and I knew no matter what came, I was going to persevere, and now it's just falling apart. Verse 4, he's saying, I can't sleep, I can't stay awake, I'm beside myself. Verses 5 and 6, I, I'm thinking about what it used to be like to enjoy you, and I'm wanting to get there again. Verse 7, this is tough language. Will the Lord spurn forever? God, do we have to keep going through this? Do, are you going to continue? Am I going to have to live another day with this? Is there nothing over the horizon? Will you never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? And again, we as modern Christians, we're trained to immediately see that, that question and go, no, of course not. Has his love ever, never ceased? Of course not. We're steadfast in our faith. What are you doing you're not? Let's be real. What do you do when you feel everything but confident in God's love for you? This is inspired scripture. This is preserved for us. Are his promises, verse 8, at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? And notice in this verse, we're about to have a little switch. We go from asking, has God passively forgotten us, to now, the end of verse 9, has he in anger shut up his compassion? God, are you actively against me? Are, are you holding back blessing from me? Selah, end of second movement. Stop and think about it. Let's, as a congregation, stop and just sit with this. Still no resolution. If at the end of verse 9, I close my Bible and say, amen, God bless you, let's go home, you would be upset with me, wouldn't you? And you would have a right to be. This is not fun. And so far, there doesn't seem to be much hope. But it is real. But there's a switch in verse 10, as we pick up the third movement of the song, to keep it moving, when I don't 
when I don't get an answer, when I've lost my joy, third point, I remember past grace. I remember God's grace in the past. I remember his grace, and I'm going to give it its due attention. So we see an important pivot here in verse 10. Asaph has dealt with his anguish, and he has been real with it, and he has not held back. And he said, this is where I am. This is where I find myself. This is all I see. This is how I feel. Lord, where are you? But beginning of verse 10, notice the psalmist begins using his head rather than just his feelings. He starts bringing his feelings under control. He starts taking control of himself. He begins to start centering on who God is rather than just where he finds himself. Verse 10, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. So he went from saying, I had this time with you and I don't know where that went, I don't know where that is, to saying, okay, Let's think about those times. Let's think about the years of God's faithfulness to me. Let's think about all of the ways he's delivered me in the past. Let's think of the ways his blessings have just been poured out of, on us, out of nowhere, without expectation. Let's, let's, let's start thinking about those things too. Verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Verse 12, I will ponder all your work, all of it. I'm going to step back and, and give, it, give you, Lord, your rightful scope. I'm going to see this with the full scope. I'm not just going to view you through just through where I find myself right now, just through the year 2020. Lord, what was 2020 all about? Well, let's back up a little bit. Let's look at from the start of your life how God has faithfully blessed you without end. Let's think about how he sent his son for you. Let's think about the promises he has made to you. Let's think about those things in totality and give them their due as well. He's taking control. He's saying, I'm not just going to think about how I feel in the moment. I'm going to give, give this the broad perspective it's due. I will ponder what? All your work. Verse 13, your way, O oh God, is holy. It's important to understand that word right here means unique. It means your way is not like mine. God, you are holy. Your way is holy. Your way is unique. It's not like me. In other words, I wouldn't do it this way, but you did. And since I know that you're perfect, that means the fact that I would do it differently means that my way is not perfect, right? Right? God, I'm going to look at this with perspective. I have an idea of how this should be going. It's not going my way. And this is where it hurts sometimes to say this, but it's still right. Even though I look at what's going on right now, where I am and everything I'm dealing with, it's still right. Because your way is holy. Well, God is great like our God. Verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. Notice he didn't say you were the God who works wonders. We're going to get there. We're going to go back and look at something specific, but he's 
There's, there's still a nugget of faith there. You are still who you were. You haven't changed. You are the God who works wonders. You are that God, the same God who delivered us mightily in the past. Verse 15, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Joseph and Jacob. Selah. Okay, we can stop and, and sit with that one. We can find hope in that one. Yes, all of these things that we've said about our situation, they're true and they're real and they're painful. But we remember who God has been and we remember that he continues to be who he's always been. Selah. So I remember past grace, his love for me, his promises to me. I remember his presence that I have so sweetly known and I Fourth point, I remember God's power. I remember God's power. Look at beginning in verse 16. I love the language, that the poetry that's used here to describe God's deliverance. And it points back to that one instance in Israelite history that they always point back to in the Psalms and in the Old Testament. You want an example of deliverance? Let's go back to the Red Sea. Let's go back to what God did there. What we've been studying in our our series in Exodus. Asaph says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. This poetry is a device used to demonstrate the absolute authority of God over nature, over everything, which Jesus personified all the time throughout his ministry. Remember walking on the water and healing the sick and changing things, telling the storm to go away. It's demonstrating who God is and how powerful he is and how nothing is hard for him. And then we read, then we read Exodus chapter 13. Do you remember when Jamie, back in October, preached on the Israelites after Passover, after they, the plagues, after they had left Egypt, but before they came to the Red Sea? Do you remember that part where it talked about how God led them? They were ready to go into the, to the promised land. So remember what's happening they're living day by day by his provision. Bread in the morning. He has, God has to provide water for them. God provides that their clothes and their shoes don't rot. He provides a, a pillar by day, pillar of fire at night for them to follow. And they're ready to go along what is described for us as this, it's like a caravan path. It's a well-worn way to get to where they're going. Do you remember verses 17 and 18 of Exodus 13? It said, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not, I want you to listen to this, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. God said, that's the easy way to go. I'm not going to lead them that way. Why? Because God knew something they didn't know. God knew they wouldn't make it. God knew they would give up. 
But, Exodus tells us, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. Now imagine if I'm one of the Israelites and I'm, I see my way straight ahead and all of a sudden the pillar that we're following starts going toward the ocean. I'm thinking, what? It's, it's right there. Why don't we just go that way? Psalm 77, verse 19 says, your way was through the sea. God's holy. His way is holy. It's not like ours. God's way wasn't the easy way because he knew we wouldn't make it. He knew more about us than we knew. God decided, no, you're going this way. You're going by way of the sea. And I can imagine when the Israelites came up to the edge of the Red Sea, even as one wall of cold water stood to the heavens on one side and one wall of cold water stood to the heavens on the other side and that path was made for them. I imagine, I would imagine the, the cloud they've been following had been blacked out and all you see is water and a path and then they look behind them and see chariots racing for them as fast as can be. I don't imagine in that moment the Israelite was saying, well, it appears the Lord is taking care of us. Look at this path. Let's go. I think they were scared out of their minds. I think they grabbed their kids and ran as fast as they could. I believe that's why when they looked back on the other side and they saw the Red Sea crash over their tormentors, I believe that's why they danced and sang like madmen. Because that's not supposed to happen. They were pinned against the ocean. And all of a sudden, they've been delivered. That is what the psalmist is referring to when he looks back in verses 16 through 20 to this Red Sea event and he says, I remember what you did for us. I can't think back on that kind of deliverance, that level of care that you had for us and then now just believe you've abandoned us. I'm gonna consider what you've done. Your way was through the sea. It was a different way than I would have taken, but it was right your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Listen to this. Yet your footprints were unseen. In that moment when they stepped out in faith and just started going across a path that shouldn't have been there, running from the Egyptians, even in that moment, they didn't see the footprints of God. They didn't know until after the fact, after they saw the completion of it, where they said, look what God did. It was then, it was in retrospect, where they saw God's deliverance. So there, verse 20, you led your people like a flock. Asaph recognizes even then you were leading us. You were leading us like a, a flock, like a shepherd leads his sheep by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And then it says, Selah, end of the last movement. Let's stop and think about this. We started in despair. We started saying, God, where are you? We ended in the place I cannot but recognize, God, you are still with us. Even when life hits and hits and hits and continues to hit until you're sick of it hitting you. God, I, I still have to look up. While my soul is in anguish and I lament where we are and I don't know my way out and I don't understand what you're doing and even at times cannot see your presence or even your footprints, I believe you're there. 
I believe that kind of faith glorifies him so much. It's trusting him. Very quickly, let me conclude a couple, with a couple of points, three quick points about lament. Let me, let me just say, if you want to jot these things down, if you're a note taker, what are, what are some things that are not biblical lament? If I want to know how to take, how to deal with these things personally, what are some things that are not lament? Let's make sure we're not doing this the wrong way. I would say, first of all, unrealistic forms of optimism. We dealt with that. I'm talking about the fake kind that projects joy when... We're dying on the inside. I don't think that serves us well. I don't think God's being glorified in that. I think we're just, we're doing something different than lament here. So I'm not talking about that. I would say lament is not lashing out on others. I don't have to expound on that. It, it might feel right in just for a second in the moment. That's, that's not biblical lament. Lament is not seeking other things or other people to be your source of relief. Lament still looks upward, still reaches upward. Lament is not controlling people. And you might say, that, that sounds a little weird. Why would you throw that in there? I've got to go give my sister credit for this one. My sister, by profession, is a behavioral therapist. She told me something I haven't forgotten. She said that she's observed that when people feel out of control, this is human nature, this is what we do, when we feel out of control, we've got to fix something. We've, we've got to fix something. Even if I can't fix the situation, I've got to fix something. It's our tendency. It's a defense mechanism. And if I can't fix something, I start fixing someone. If I can't fix the situation, I, I start getting people to do what I think they need to do. It's, it's, it's natural. And I mean that in a biblical sense, like fleshly. It's natural. I don't like that about myself. I gotta be careful for that. That's not lament. Lament isn't finding what I can do to fix things. Lament is saying, God, only you can fix this. Lament isn't walking away from God in despair. What does biblical lament look like? Very quickly. I would describe it as lament as, be, as expressing a bare bones honesty that throws itself upon the grace of God. So I would say a couple of things. How do I lament? Express to God where you are and how you feel. Be honest. Be honest. Recognize, though, keep going, recognize that God's path, God's holy path, leads to grace, leads to more grace. Tim Keller said there is no better place to find God's grace than in a place of darkness. We don't want to hear that. That's not on the surface good news for me. That's not what I want to hear. But it is true. That is where we find our Savior. Those who have never been in need of rescue don't know the thrill of what it means to be rescued. God is glorified in rescuing us, showing us grace. So recognize that God's path leads to grace Take control of yourself, like Asaph did here. I'm not going to stay in my feelings. I'm going to look at the full scope of this and, and remember who God is and what he's done. That's the last point is just remember. The old cliche of counting your blessings, but it's true. Count your blessings. Think about it. Think about the times God's come through for you when you couldn't. Remember as we sang earlier, our hope 
is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Remember that whatever my lot, he's taught me to say it is well with my soul. Even though his path is through the sea, he's not abandoned us. Even though I can't see his footprints, it doesn't mean he's not there. And even though I don't feel joy right now, it doesn't mean there isn't a greater weight of joy and glory waiting for me because I belong to him, because his promises are true. There is hope for the Christian. There is joy waiting on us on the other side of this. And faith latches onto that even if we have to latch on with our fingernails. Sometimes the greatest expression of faith is through hot tears and gritted teeth. Sometimes faith isn't about how well I feel about something. No matter what hits me, I'm Superman. That's not faith. Faith is I believe God even though at the moment I don't feel any reason to. I trust him. I'm going to believe in him. So be encouraged that God remains who he is in 2020 and in, now into 2021. God's faithful. He's faithful to his word. And even when we remain faithless, he remains faithful. Will you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, I want to say thank you for the truth of your word, even when it's really, really, really difficult to believe and grasp a hold of. I recognize this morning that we are in a difficult place in our nation as a people. The whole globe has dealt with something this year that often we just don't know how to handle. There's so many other extenuating circumstances. There's so many things that afflict us. I recognize this morning I'm preaching to people who no doubt have suffered even more than I have, my family has. And we as a group just want to look up to ask you to remind us of your grace and your providence, your blessing your love for us. Help us to see your footprints. Help us to know your presence. Help us to grasp hold of who you are. Your character is pure and right and good and true. Help us to remember. Thank you that you sent your son into the world so that we did not have to die in despair. We don't have to live in despair or die in despair. But your son died so that we could be yours. And he rose from the dead so that we could live as your children forever. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for what that means. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.